This week we are going to be finishing off part two of our series on some of the unsung heroes of scripture. I have a feeling that we'll be back at some point, but for now, uh, this, today's sermon will hit the pause button and, and we'll prepare to begin a new series in the coming weeks. In this series, we have looked at some names we may not be super familiar with in scripture, names like Bezalel and Yehoshaba. We've seen how God uses people for his purposes, people that we probably wouldn't. People like the widow who God used to take care of Elijah, the prophet, who had caused the famine that had brought her so much grief. People like Mordecai, the good citizen, who, despite his feelings about leadership, followed those in authority well until it was time to put his foot down and reject their instruction. People like Ehud, the left-handed, unqualified man who slew a king as he sat upon his throne and led the armies of Israel in battle during the time of the judges. The final unsung hero that we'll be looking at in this portion of the series is also from the book of Judges. We'll find her in the chapter following Ehud's Judges, chapter 4. Here we find the people of Israel have once again done evil in the eyes of the Lord, worshipped false gods, and turned their back on Yahweh. So the Lord gave them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan. A man named Sisera was the general of Jabin's armies. Under his command were 900 chariots fitted with iron, an impressive instrument of war at the time, and they were used to cruelly oppress the Israelites for 20 years. And then Israel called out to God for deliverance. And that is where we will pick up with our text this morning. We'll be reading in Judges chapter 4, verses 4 to 11. If you brought your Bibles with you, I invite you to follow along. There should be a Bible in the pew in front of you, if you prefer ink and paper. But if not, the words will be on the screens beside me. We read the word of the Lord this morning. Judges chapter 4, verses 4 to 11. Now Deborah a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh to Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. And Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly, I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, and there Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zainanim, near Kadesh. Thus ends our reading this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. I pray this in your name. 
Amen. Often what God calls us to doesn't feel possible, fair, or safe. Barak got a crash course in this realization, this truth. Called to stand before Deborah and told that God has called him to gather 10,000 men and go to battle against the might of the oppressor's forces, against the captain of the armies of Israel, the enemy's armies, against the cruel Sisera. To be told that God is going to lead Sisera to him. He can't escape. God's going to make sure that this conflict takes place, that this conflict happens. I don't know for sure what was running through the head of Barak at that moment, but I would hazard a guess that it was something along the lines of great, fantastic. This is exactly why I was hoping that you'd summon me. I, I always wanted to go to battle against overwhelming odds. This is what I've always dreamed of, just super. Now, we don't actually know if Barak was heavy on sarcasm, but we do know is that Barak just kind of stood there looking at Deborah for a minute, the weight of what Deborah is saying settling upon him. God wants him to lead 10,000 men against the iron chariots of Sisera. That's like taking horses to fight tanks. Barak, battle chief, warrior of Naphtali, chosen, called by God for this purpose, looks at Deborah and says, I'll do this, I'll do this on one condition. You got to come with me. He asks Deborah to put her money where her mouth is. He's scared of those chariots. He's not entirely sure that Deborah heard the Lord correctly. He wants, to put, he wants her to put some skin in the game. He wants her to assume some of the risk. He doesn't trust her. He, he isn't convinced that what she is proclaiming is actually the word of the Lord. Ever been there? Ever been asked to do something by God, called to do something by God, but not, not really sure that you want to believe that that call was meant for you? Or that God was calling you to do that? Maybe God is calling you to be a missionary overseas. He's, he's definitely calling you to be a missionary to your neighbors and your community. Maybe he's calling you to be a church planner or to be part of the core team of a church plan. Maybe he's calling you to take a job that pays less so that you might have more time to be involved in his mission. Maybe he's calling you to take a step of faith that you just don't really feel ready for. Maybe he's calling you to volunteer with a particular organization or get involved in a particular ministry, but you're scared. You, you don't feel qualified. There's a lot of risk involved. There's, there's a lot of unknown. The chariots of the enemy seem mighty powerful as you stand before them with nothing but a sword or spear. Sometimes we ask for signs, right? Sometimes we ask for, for further proof that this is actually what God wants us to do. We, we bury the conviction that we feel because we're scared. And, and we want assurances that this isn't all going to blow up in our face. That we are making a mistake. That we are hearing God correctly. And so we ask Deborah to join us. We wait. We don't act on what we know we're supposed to be acting on and instead we we wait hoping that God will give us the assurances that will make us feel more comfortable in taking this leap of faith the assurances that will mitigate or at least justify our risk 
Can any of us relate to Barak? Maybe not all the time. Maybe not every time. But how about right now? What ministry, what life change, what is God calling you to that you are struggling to pursue, afraid to take action on? What call are you hesitant to submit to? Because there's just too much at stake. Too much you aren't willing to let go of. Yeah, I think we can all relate to Barak. Those chariots, they are mighty intimidating. And in the face of those chariots, our faith has slipped. That's not to say that we've abandoned our faith. It's not to say that we've lost our faith. Though at times it may feel like that, and at times it may actually come to that. And when our faith has slipped, when we haven't perfectly rested in what God is calling us to do, what he is calling us to trust in, what then? If we have walked away from our faith, if it's all been just too much for us, what then? When your faith has slipped or you have set it aside, know that God has not set you aside. He is calling you to repentance. He is calling you to faith. Church, the promises of God hold fast. Though you have faltered, stumbled, and questioned, God has not. Where you have been faithless, where we have been faithless, God is faithful. Our lack of ability to be perfect does not stop him from loving us. Our struggles to do all that he has called us to do have not caused him to give up on us. His love for us is too great for him to set it aside. And that's why he sent Jesus. Because we can't be perfect. We can't be all that God is calling us to. Because at times our faith will slip. We will not follow God's desire for our lives perfectly. Each and every one of us is a broken sinner. None are perfect. None but Christ. And so God sent Jesus, and Jesus lived with us, and he ate with us, and he spent time with us. He suffered here on earth with us. He, he, was, he was hungry with us. It was cold with us. He skinned his knees. He dealt with constipation and bloating. But we know that his suffering went far beyond that, even beyond the suffering that we have experienced. Sit in that for a moment. Jesus' suffering surpassed the suffering that we have gone through or will go through. For you see, though he was perfect, he was betrayed. Lies and subtle twists of the truth led him to be charged in a rigged trial. He was tried and, and found guilty. He was sentenced to death on a cross, a death reserved for the worst of Roman society. But as he carried the cursed tree up the hill to Calvary, his shoulders were weighed down, not just by the rough and heavy wood of the cross, but by the sins of the world. For the Bible tells us that as the perfect Son of God was nailed to the tree and as he hung there, that he became sin for us. There on that cross, Jesus took my sin. He took your sin. He took the sin of your neighbor. He took the sin of the people that we love. He took the sin of the people that we can't stand. He took all of the sin of all time, the truth, the sin that, that you have done and the sin that has been done against you. Jesus took all of the sin, and there on the cross, he paid for it. He paid for the price that none of us could have. He paid the price for every time that our faith has slipped. 
He paid the price for the times that we've set our faith aside. There is no sin that Jesus did not take upon himself as he hung on that cross. And because of our sin, the wrath of God was poured out over him. And there on the cross, he died. But he did not stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And if we believe in him, if we trust in him, then the Bible tells us that the dirty rags of our sin are taken from us. And we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. O sinner, repent. O faithless, repent. O Christian, repent. Know that God does not close the door when we walk away, but that he is constantly reaching for us, searching for us, pursuing us, and calling us back into relationship with him. Know that God hears your repentance and that he forgives you. Know that God restores the broken, that he gives faith to the fallen. This is the promise of our God, and in that we can trust, in that we can rest. And as the story of Barak attests, God has a plan, and though we may unwittingly or knowingly, in our sinfulness, hinder that plan at times, we cannot stop the mission of God. So how does God respond to Barak's lack of faith? Deborah looks at Barak and says, yes, I will go with you. But because you are choosing this course of action, because you aren't responding out of faith, but are instead in your fear seeking assurances, the honor to come will not be yours. For Yahweh will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Notice what happens here. God didn't decide to put Barak on the bench because of his slip of faith. God didn't decide to discard Barak. Barak isn't going to get everything out of this call that he had hoped to get. He's not going to get everything that God had wanted him to get. But God isn't casting him aside either. In his grace and his mercy, God uses Barak in spite of his flaws, in spite of his fear, in spite of his slip of faith. And neither does he cast us aside, though he may and usually does work in ways that we are not entirely expecting. And there is definitely an element of that in our story this morning. Let's take a look at, at verse 11. The last verse of the text we read this morning, it, it seems like it doesn't really fit in with the rest of what is going on in the passage up to that point. And it's because the author of Judges decides to take a break from the Barak and Deborah narrative and injects a tidbit of information about a location and the hint of a character that will come to play a large role as this story progresses. In verse 11 we read of how Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites and set up his tent by the great tree in Zananim near Kadesh. If we were to read further here in Judges 4, we would see that Heber was a traitor. He, his people, and his family were old allies of the Israelites, descended from Moses' brother-in-law. But Heber left the faith of his fathers, left the alliance that he had had with Israel, enjoyed the side of King Jabin and his general Sisera. Now in Joshua 19, we read that this tree that Heber was camped beside marks the boundary of the land of the people of Naphtali the people whom God has called to fight in this battle. So from his vantage point, up on this hill by this tree, he has a great view from which to observe Barak's preparations for battle. He set himself up 
to be of use to his new friends and the enemy of his people. Once the author of Judges has introduced this new player to the game, we are brought to the battle between Barak and his 10,000 men against Sisera and his 900 chariots of iron, along with the rest of his armies. Now the battle takes place, in, though the battle takes place in Judges 4, and here we read about how Deborah calls to Barak and tells him that God has delivered Sisera into his hands, and to go and claim his victory. Barak does. And we read that Barak and the men of Naphtali rout the armies of Sisera. What we don't read is how. And that becomes clear in Judges 5, during the Song of Deborah. Now remember how our text said that God would lead Sisera to the Kishon River. During the Psalm of Deborah, we learn that the Kishon River would be the downfall of the chariots of Sisera. The Kishon was not a large river. It is believed to have been pretty shallow and, and quite easy to cross. On one side, you have the armies of Israel preparing to fight a hopeless battle. And on the other, you have the armies of Sisera getting ready to rain destruction. And then the sky begins to darken. A storm approaches from the south. It, it sweeps across the Dead Sea, gathering moisture and increasing in intensity as it moved up the Jordan Valley and into the central highlands. Then, with incredible precision, precision, the mighty clouds of the storm break and drop their payload of flooding rain right at the source of the feeble Kishon River. And the river is feeble no longer as it rushes. Small streams and shallow waters become a raging torrent, engulfing the army of Sisera, which had been on the bank, preparing to move across. The chariots were carried away or buried in mud. Men were drowned, washed away with the flood, or exhausted from fighting the currents. So when Barak and his men showed up, it was really for cleanup duty. Sisera saw that defeat was inevitable, and so he ran. And in the chaos, Barak did not notice the flight of Sisera, and he went to work putting an end to the enemy. Judges 4 tells us that no man was left living from the mighty army of Sisera. But too late, Barak realizes that Sisera has escaped, and he begins his pursuit, but Sisera has a healthy head start, and Barak doesn't have much hope of catching him. The evil commander must have felt some sense of hope when he saw the tent of Heber the Kenite. This was an ally. This, this was a friend. This was a man who had swapped sides. He would be safe here. Here, he could hide. He rides up to the tent and begs sanctuary, but Heber is not home. He's away. The only one in the tent is the unsung hero we are looking at this morning, Jael, Heber's wife. Jael welcomes Sisera into the tent. Sisera tells her he'd like some water, but instead she gives him milk. She gave him some blankets for with which to cover himself, and the milk and the warmth and the exhaustion, it all went to work. As he was beginning to doze off, Sisera requested that Jael would tell nobody that he was there. And then he fell into a deep sleep. At least for his sake, I hope that it was a deep sleep. For once he was out soundly sawing logs, Jael picked up a tent peg and a hammer and then proceeded to put the tent peg through Sisera's temple and into the ground. Pretty brutal, right? Like, that's... That's not something you see in your Sunday school classes all that much. 
Not, that I, not, not what I was expecting the first time that I read this story. I was thinking that, that maybe Barak would, would find them and kill them all, or maybe Cicero would, would meet his end at the tip of Barak's blade. But no, dude is sound asleep, and the housewife shows up and puts a tent peg through his skull, killing him. Who is this woman? What's going on here? Why would she betray Sisera and her husband? What would lead her to such a brutal act? The Bible doesn't tell us a ton about Jael. What we know is that she's an ally of Yahweh, of the one true God, and that her husband betrays the faith that she's come to trust in, to believe in. He takes her away from her people, away from her history. He aligns himself with the enemy, and though she goes with him, her allegiances do not change. Earlier we spoke of the tough situation that Barak was put in. Fight against Sisera and his iron chariots? No way, man, not without some assurances. But here we see Jael also put in a tough situation. She has remained faithful to her husband, even though he has not remained faithful to the promises to the friends, to the people, to the God he had once allied himself to. Though she did not agree with her husband and she, she went with him. I can't imagine that that would have been a very enjoyable experience. I would think she had become a bit of an outcast, caught between two worlds, her husband and her people, her faith. So on one hand, we have Barak, the leader of men, the commander of thousands. He has been called into action by the Lord his God, but he's scared. His faith is wavering. The odds are great, and in his fear, he refuses to move forward unless others move forward with him. And on the other hand, we have Jael, the housewife, lonely, struggling to figure out how she fits into the changes that have taken place in her life, uncertain of how to walk the line between her new friends, her husband's new friends, and her personal convictions. And then here comes Sisera up to her tent, the enemy. What is she to do? One of the things that I love about this text is that when you read it, now we didn't necessarily go through, there's a lot of verses and I didn't want to go through all of them, but when you read it, and I'd encourage you to go back and take a look in Judges 3, you have no idea which side she's on. You have no clue as you read that text of what she's about to do. She's Heber the Kenite's wife. You figure she's just going to help Sisera out. Her actions are shocking, both because they are brutal and because they are completely unexpected. But through her actions, Jael does the will of the Lord. Expected or not, anticipated or not, it doesn't matter. God doesn't always use the person that we expect to carry out his will. Back when we saw that Barak would not get the honor of, of taking down Sisera, but that he would instead be delivered, that Sisera would instead be delivered into the hands of a woman, the natural inclination, the first thought is that it would be Deborah, who would be that woman. She's the prophetess, she's the judge, she's the one that has a palm tree named after her, that people are coming up and, and talking to her. And if you look at this story, it seems that's a pretty popular take. That's a pretty popular understanding. I, I googled Barack and Deborah, and I got 1,030,000 hits. There's kids' picture books. They have it all. But if you Google Barack and Jael, man, I could count the pages about Jael on one hand, and the rest of them contain the name of Deborah as well. 
Now, I can understand how it might be hard to include her in a children's picture book, but you get the point. We tend to have expectations for how God is going to work. And even though it's right there before us in black and white, the woman that we give credit for Barak's victory, the one who gets the honor in the eyes of the church all these years later, as we look back on the story, is often Deborah. The one we expect is the one that we give credit, but that's not how God works. Again, God specializes in calling the unexpected to his purposes for his plans and for his mission. He called Jael the wife of a traitor, the last one that we would think would help or or could help, and yet she answered. And by her hand, the enemy of Israel, the enemy of God was slain, and she received the honor that God had originally intended for Barak. But because of his slip of faith, the honor was given to someone else, someone that we just didn't expect. And if for a minute you think it was Deborah who is supposed to be the focal point here, the one God was referencing when he was talking to Barak, go read Judges 5 and the song of Deborah. She has no issue heaping praise on Jael. Deborah knows. And so does God. And so do we. Do you feel unqualified to be part of God's mission? Do you feel like there are others who are better suited for the purposes of God, better gifted, more passionate, more knowledgeable? Do you ever feel like you aren't even certain that you belong in the church or a church? Do you struggle to see how God can use you in his mission? If you struggle with any of those questions, and truly we all struggle with those questions at time, remember the story of Barak and Jael. Remember the story of how God did not cast aside the incredibly qualified Barak despite his slip of faith. And remember how God used Jael, the lonely and hurting housewife, to defeat the general of the mighty army of Canaan. God is not concerned about what others think about you. He is not concerned with what you think about you. He is not caught up in the limitations that society, the world, or we ourselves have put upon us. He will not let your insecurity, your fear, your slips of faith, your sin, your location, your socioeconomic status, your ethnicity, your gender, or anything else stop him from calling you to be a part of his family or his mission. God loves you. He has not put the limitations upon you that others have. He is calling you to repentance. He is calling you into his family. He is calling you to mission. How will you respond? How will you respond? What a fantastic, loving, gracious, and merciful God we serve. 